So at the moment, um, we are mostly using digital. So Google, pay-per-click, Facebook, Instagram, um, those are our main acquisition channels, as well as friend referrals directly from the app or the website. Um, and here's something that I want to share, big lesson number three from what I learned. Um, when we first launched the app, and it, it was sort of launched on the website, not on the website, on the app store. I literally sat there thinking super naively and stupidly that once it's on the app store, millions of people are going to come and find us and download it and it's going to be amazing. And I literally sat there for days clicking the refresh button on how many people have downloaded the app. And it was like 5, 15, 20, like it wasn't the millions and millions that I expected. Hello and welcome to the Digital Spaceship Podcast, a marketing journal hosted by Blue Drop Studio co-founder Anna Rowinska and myself, Omar Juman. This podcast has one vision and that is to educate, inform and inspire others who are trying to build their tech brand. Tune in and listen to us chat ideation, marketing, scaling and everything in between with up and coming entrepreneurs, stakeholders and investors in tech startups across the world. We'll be diving into the details and also hearing about the journey. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. In this episode, we're speaking with Iglica, founder at Uspa. Uspa is your personal spa concierge. It's an app delivering over 50 types of beauty and wellness treatments directly to your door. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Spaceship Podcast. Uh, today, we're joined by Iglica from Uspa. Uh, how's it going, Iglica? Thank you for joining us on the show. Um, give us a, a short introduction to yourself and what you guys do over at Uspa. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, uh, Uspa in short stands for your spa at home. And we do exactly what we say on the box, really. We bring... Um, beauty and wellness treatments to your house anywhere in central London. Um, we have a team of over 200 sparistas, as we call them, who you can book via our app or website, and they basically come to your house and do everything from massages, nails, hair, makeup, over 50 different treatments um, straight in your house. So you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to travel to a salon or spa. We bring the spa to you. Awesome. Cool. Um, so... All right, let's jump into it. So with um, the journey of Uspa so far, you know, you, have you guys had funding up until this point? Um, you know, what's that journey look like? Yes, funding, as you can imagine, is one of the uh, most difficult things that any startup will have to go through. Um, fortunately, we've been able to raise two rounds of funding via Crowdcube, it's cool. a crowdfunding platform, um, in total of over half a million pounds. Um, and that definitely helped us um, progress our journey, but it's not an easy thing to do. And as, as many entrepreneurs will tell you, funding can really make it or break it for you. And, and, and it's mm -hmm. really a tough thing to go through, um, no matter how uh, easy it seems when you read about, oh, this person getting funded and that company getting funded. It, it looks so easy. It looks like there's... <laughs> billions and billions of capital flowing around just ready to be grabbed but in reality it's it's a lot more difficult than that 
Yeah. Sure. So was there a specific reason why you guys went for crowdfunding over finding some angels or, or maybe pursuing, um, you know, some incubators or, or accelerators? Uh, yes, definitely. Well, I think uh, if if listeners are familiar with the crowd, with the funding journey of any startup, you start with the what's called the friends and family and fools round, mm-hmm. um, which we did as well. So we had uh, early investment from um, myself and my family and some very close friends. Then um, we sort of had some traction in the first year, but we weren't big enough for VCs. So then usually the second round, second round of funding for a startup is what's called a seed round. Mm-hmm. That can be um, from angels, like you said, or, or smaller funds, or even VCs get involved in some seed rounds. But there's a lot of um, VCs that won't look at you if you are not of a certain um, stage or you need to have shown, say, revenues of a million plus a year, et cetera. So there are a lot of startups that fall sort of in between the cracks. You're not quite ready for VC, but you're too late for the friends and family round. Mm-hmm. So then in that, in that space is where crowdfunding really comes into place. Um, not only because it helps you gain more visibility for your product or, or service or app or whatever it is or business, but also because angels can get involved in a crowdfunding round. It is open to individuals. So um, it's a great way to combine angels, early stage uh, and other, other early stage investors before you're ready for a VC round. Yeah, awesome. I think that's, yeah, it's incredibly important. That's a good insight, actually, into into the how you guys approach that. Um, cool. So ideation wise, and you mentioned that you spar is short for your spar at home. Um, how did you come up with the idea? Do you have any co founders as well? How does that dynamic work? And uh, when when did you guys start? So uh, I came up with the idea basically because I needed it myself. Okay. <laughs> I, I was an investment banker working in the city of London for over 10 years, constantly running around um, like a headless chicken from meetings, airplanes, just, you know, having a really, really crazy Private schedule. Private jets. Well, I wish. <laughs> I wish. I wish. Not, 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 quite, not, not quite, but definitely very busy and... Um, as someone that was working in a high pressure sort of client facing environment, you want to feel well and you want to put your best foot forward. So for me, being well groomed and feeling sort of adjusted um, has always been a priority because it makes me perform better as well. Um, And at the time, this is about four and a half, five years ago, there wasn't any company that was delivering home treatments and I would have to book at salons and travel to salons and book ahead two, three days, which for me really wasn't an option because I don't know where I'm going to be three days from now. I didn't know um, when I'm going to have that pain in my neck, which needs immediate treatment. You know, there's a saying that I like to say, pain doesn't come on schedule. And when it does come, you want to treat it right away. So um, at the time, there wasn't any company which was offering on-demand treatments at my house at hours that fit it, that fit my schedule, sort of like Uber, um, but for beauty and massage treatments. And I think this is about 2015, 2015. That's when Uber really took off in London. And you know, naturally, the question was was sort of nagging me: Why can't there be an Uber for beauty and massage? 
Um, and that's really how it came up. Um, in terms of in in terms of co-founders, I don't have a co-founder. I wish I did. That was one of my biggest mistakes, I think, early on because I came from a very um, high pressure sort of high power job and you kind of when you're working in investment banking you kind of feel invincible you feel like you can do anything mm. and nothing can stand in your way and you know you're know-it-all and you have to be that sort of aggressive outgoing pushy person to thrive in that environment but so with that mentality i was like i don't need a co-founder <laughs> i can do it all myself wrong yeah very wrong <laughs> um there's so much work that goes into starting a company um from you know from operational work logistics design developers team management it, it was just way too much for one person and i wish i really wish that i had a co-founder um at the time to help me go through this and i think one good you know, one good reasoning that I heard from a friend of mine who um, was a co-founder of QuickUp, mm -hmm. um, they are five co-founders. And I said to him, I said to him, wow, five co-founders, how do you guys like, isn't there so much infighting and, you know, how do you even like get anything done? Mm. And he's like, well, imagine having five of you, five people <laughs> that are as dedicated as you, as pushy, as excited about the product, as driven to make it succeed, how much faster would you move and how much further would you go if you had five of you instead of just one of you? And then it hit me that, yeah. you know, if I had even two of me, like I would have gotten so much more done so much faster. So definitely one very important lesson learned, whatever you're starting um, as an entrepreneur, get a co-founder. Yeah, you, you need it. You yeah, absolutely. absolutely, it's um, it's it's very important. And um, I guess you know what I'm really curious to hear about is so if you started a company by yourself, did you join any um startup groups or networks to actually you know learn a bit more about you know how to do stuff and and the steps needed to actually succeed? Yeah, um, definitely. I think London is a great place for entrepreneurs and there are thousands of resources that one can um, utilize to help them on their journey. There are so many networking groups. Um, literally, if you just Google London tech startup networking, there's meetups that are happening every single day, five times a day. People teaching you everything from app design to um, digital marketing to, um, you know, team management, you just have to put yourself out there and learn. And that's exactly what I did in the six months before I left my day job to dedicate myself to this. Okay, Basically, so I, you, you overlapped that period. I overlapped that. That's yeah, that's really good. Yeah. I would go to my day job and then basically for six months, almost every other night I would be at some event, either startup um, pitch event, just to sort of hear other people's pitches, learning event, uh, networking event, something or other that would help me sort of get the initial framework in my mind of how things work and what, what, what comes after what. Cool. So uh, you mentioned that, you know, you, you were preparing for this almost for six months, um, to some degree. So at what point then was it that you decided all right, I'm going to take the leap. I'm going to quit my job, you know, and I'm, I'm going to just put everything that I have behind this idea. What were the triggers behind that? You know, what, what made you 
Well, uh, it was pretty much when we were close to launch um, mm-hmm. because there's in the beginning stages, there's a lot to be done in terms of app design, um, you know, tech development, etc. which I, I'm not a technical person. I don't code. So there wasn't much that I can do other than give instructions and mm-hmm. hire a team and whatnot. Um, so basically, I didn't quit until I was absolutely needed full time. Um, again, another thing that one should consider if they're transitioning from a corporate job to a startup is that imagine you're not going to get, you're not going to make any money for the first three years. So try and <laughs> really, you know, save as much as possible from your day job, um, stay in your day job as much as possible until you really absolutely have to, to quit. Unless you obviously have funding from the get go, which helps. Yeah. But as a general rule, um, you make very little, if any, money in the first three years in a startup. Um, you're obviously working to grow the company and grow the value of your equity. And, um, you know, you try to minimize your own salary mm-hmm. uh, so that you can plow as much back into the business as possible rather than the, the opposite. So that's how it usually works. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, so you mentioned there you know, a little bit on you had to hire a team, you had to pull together some developers um, to look into actually creating a product that you could take to market. Uh, mm-hmm. What was that process like? Like, where did you, um, well, firstly, how did you know what it, it was that you needed to hire for? Uh, did someone advise you on that? And then where did you go to, to find those teams? Yes. Um, so the finding of developers, if you're not one yourself, or if you, or if you don't have a technical co-founder, is almost like dating and speed <laughs> dating. I literally, I literally googled developers London, yeah. and I, you know, I got in touch with say five different companies from you know very different price ranges. Obviously, with any with any business, you have developers and providers that cost this much and ones that cost this much. Um, and I met with every one of them and it was really much a combination of, um, this is my vision. This is what I want you to build. Do you get it? Show me what you've built before. If I like it. And if I think that your prices and track record are, 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 uh, good, then we can work together. And that's pretty much what happened. I probably met with the first three, four people that I met with, they weren't quite getting it. They weren't sure, but like, how is this going to work? Are you sure? Maybe this, that. Um, some some prices were way too high. Other people were showing me um, previous projects that basically broke the second that I opened them. So I'm oh, like, no. I'm, oh, I'm no. not going yeah. to hire you if, <laughs> if whatever you're showing me doesn't work. Like, you know, it's not, you're not really putting your best foot forward. Mm-hmm. So the developers that I ended up working with, we met at, they immediately got what I, what I had in mind. They understood it literally within half an hour. They're like, right, I get you. Mm -hmm. This is what you want. Um, They showed me previous work of theirs, which looked really nice um, and appealing and it worked. Um, Mm -hmm. They then sent me a proposal very quickly within, I would say 24 hours. So they were very professional gave me a really good feeling and that's really what you can hope for um when you when you're searching for a team because you can't you know you're going to be working with these people a lot you need to be able to get along with them you need to be on the same page um vision wise and obviously you need to be able to afford them so 
um, there has to be, you know, there's, there has to be some chemistry. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the price. You know, there has to be a good sort of mutual feeling of understanding and you just have to go with your gut and economics a little. Yeah. Gut and yeah. logic. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so following that then, when, you know, you, you got together this team, you found some developers that, you know, really um, got the vision, understood the values and what it was you were trying to, to build. Um, how long did it take then from, you know, hiring that initial team to creating the first MVP or the first thing that you took to market? Six months or so. Okay, that's pretty... Yeah, six Six, let's, between six and eight months, let's say. Yeah. Mm. Um, eight months, we were on the market. Six months, we had a first beta product, which I then tested with friends and family for about a month and a half. Mm-hmm. And then I would say within the eight months, we had launched on the App Store. Okay, cool. And um, how did... Which is, a fair, which is a fairly fast timeline. I yeah, I was going to say that was yeah. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> I've seen sprints take six months, you know, <laughs> let alone the, the actual product um, development. So, cool. How does that MVP look like in comparison to, you know, your product that's hit the market now? Have you guys been um, really on the ball in terms of you know, talking to your customers, talking to your users, making sure that you, you understand the feedback that comes from them. Have you been iterating changes or does your product look very similar to, to, you know, the first thing that you guys launched with? So my product now looks nothing like yeah. <laughs> what we launched. And, and again, this is lesson, big lesson number two. Um, when we first were building the initial app, I based my assumptions on things that I want because mm-hmm. I thought that I am myself's best customer. Mm-hmm. And I thought that everyone wants bookings and treatments within the next hour um, and that people are like me and they don't plan ahead and that they want a system which kind of like Uber geolocates mm-hmm. a therapist near you and brings them to you within the next hour. So we spend a lot of money building that fairly complex system um, only to then find out that actually 70% of people want to book ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and not, not that much ahead, like same day, mm. but still not within the next hour. Yeah. So again, that's a, that was a sort of a big mistake on my part. I did some market research but when i say market research i asked like maybe five to ten friends and family which perhaps you know in hindsight was not nearly enough i should have asked uh, a proper focus group of at least 20 30 people that i don't know um, about their booking habits and you know what might they want in terms of an at-home service and how often etc so definitely when we launched it um a you know, the system didn't work the way that I wanted it to work because also the supply of therapists, they weren't sitting on their phones all day accepting jobs because they might be in the treatment. Yeah. So it's not like Uber where the driver has the phone in front of him all the time mm-hmm. and he can click, 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 click. With our services, if a massage therapist is on a booking, he, he can't be looking at his phone to be accepting or declining jobs. So that system you know, was basically flawed from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's another mistake that I learned the expensive way because I would say within six months of launching, we had to completely redo our booking system and add a functionality to book 
ahead and to schedule bookings rather than having them within the next hour. Um, So, um, and then since then, we've learned to definitely listen to our customers. We don't launch any new feature or any new product unless at least 10 to 15 customers have asked for it. And that's really how we've grown. We started with two treatments, massage and nails. Um, and now we offer over 50 different treatments. Wow. And it's and it's because um, we've listened to our customers and they've said, oh, well, you guys should do this and you guys should offer this. And and we're like, okay, sure, you know, let's do yeah. it. Let's, let's, let's add it. Um, and again, even now, literally today we've launched um, USPA 3.0, our, our latest version of the app. And every single feature that is in there is things that clients have asked for. There's absolutely not one feature that I thought myself, "Mm, this would be nice, but you know, I don't know, nothing like literally anything that I have people build is because clients have asked for it. That's great. I think that there's two super important things that we touched on there. And the first one is being that, you know, you really need to understand that journey uh, that user journey and not only user journey, but the, uh, the therapist journey as well. The people who are actually, um, mm-hmm. your suppliers essentially. Mm-hmm. Here. Um, and that's, that's so crucial. And then there's also, you know, just understanding and listening and taking on surveys and feedback and implementing that back into the product. That's just, yeah. I think the most important, if like, if there's one thing someone can do with a tech, uh, product, it's, it's that at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's, it's super, super important. Amazing. So I think we've, we've covered a bit on like the product development. So when, when did your brand start to become a thing? When was that considered? Was that, and when I say brand, I mean, from the, the, the visual point of view, also, you know, the messaging tone of voice and and the values. Um, but like, when did you start to actually create this, this brand identity? Um, when was it, I suppose, you, you kind of have to have an idea in your head when you're starting about what it is that you want to deliver and who you want to deliver it to. And that, and that dictates your, the rest of your imaging and tone of voice. I had a very good idea. And I think that's part of the reason why also we managed to launch so quickly is because some people, they'll think something one day and the next day they'll change their minds. And Maybe a month later, they'll change their minds again. Whereas I was very clear from the beginning, I want a unisex brand that appeals to a high-end consumer um, that is professional, um, reliable, um, and basically does what it says on the box. I don't want anything too girly. So you never see us use colors like pink, uh, purple. So we keep all of our colors unisex. Um, I wanted our logo to be instantly recognizable, which I think the initial designers did a very good job at. Um, and again, I wanted the design to be very simple, clean. We are a beauty and wellness company after all. So, um, you know, we wanted a design that reflects that clean, professional, reliable, unisex. Um, and again, so we went with the initial design and iterations for years. Just now, in the last six months, we've done a complete brand redesign to reflect the transition to the next level. Um, and we still kept some elements from the initial design, but if you see our website from you know four years ago to what it is now today, 
it is totally different. Um, we've maintained some colors, we've changed most of them, we've elevated our look to be even more professional, um, but also to appeal to a wider range of audiences and a lot of B2B customers as well, because that's something that we want to go after um, in terms of uh, business growth, not only appeal to a consumer, but to a business as well. There's a number of um, boutique hotels, service departments, companies, and um, sort of clubs that could that we can partner with and, and that we can deliver our services to, to members. So we want to we wanted to bring our brand and our look to um, you know to the 21st century. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and I think we've done we've done a pretty good job with that. Our, our our latest designers I think did a fantastic job in understanding what our brand stands for and what we want people to to obtain from it when they land on our website. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's um, it, it's a very, very nice design for sure. And it does encapsulate all of the things that you mentioned. So well done on that for sure. Thank you. Um, in terms of the journey with branding, um, so the initial version of your brand, because we've got sort of two sides here, the, the way it looks and then the way it talks. Okay. Um, so did you did you work with a just a designer and you were sort of writing the copy and sort of helping out from that messaging point of view uh, or did you find copywriters as well to help in that process it was a combination um i couldn't possibly write all the copy for the website so i did hire designers um sorry copywriters to write most of the copy but i definitely changed a lot of it and added our tone of voice because mm. Again, as as the brand owner and and sort of CEO, you know your best how you want to sound. And um, you know our team um, now we have three directors who uh, will who have looked at it as well. So it's not it's not just me, um, but definitely it's a combination. You have to again, it's a lot of work. There's fifty different services and you know, hundreds of locations that would deliver things to, there's a lot of pages to fill content with. And you have to have a professional team that, that writes it all, unless you're a copywriter yourself and then you want to do it yourself, which is fine. But, you know, if you have other things to do as a startup founder, you know, um, you have to get professional help and then edit it a little bit to, to add to your tone of voice to it. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in terms of the design side then, um, so you, you mentioned you worked with a designer. So is that um, a freelance designer that you found or were you considering working with like a small scale agency at the beginning? So in the beginning, um, our designer was part of our development team. So our tech team um, was based in Romania in the beginning. And their, um, one of the team there was a fantastic designer as well. So he did most of the design. And now the second time around, when we did the rebranding, I hired a small agency here in London, um, which had approached me because they had heard that we're crowdfunding and they wanted to get involved on that side and also help with the rebrand as well. So it was kind of a match made in heaven because they were clients of ours as well, which said, you know, if you ever think of rebranding, let us know. Um, and then the whole thing sort of went from there. And to be honest, the process of rebranding with an actual agency 
is very professional and very different to what I went through in the beginning. In the beginning, four years ago, I said, I like blue and I like gray and I like white. <laughs> so just like create something with those colors and um, something unisex. Don't put too much, you know, pictures, um, maybe some nice flowers here and there. And that's it. Thanks. Now we literally went through three or four reiterations of brand identity. They have had a whole process um, which you know makes you think about what you want your brand to say. So they will have like a hundred index cards which says reliable, professional, fun, young, creative, and then you have to pick out which of these apply to you. So then you narrow it down to five key points that you want your brand to address, five key points of what you know you want your brand to stand for out of hundreds. Um, and that's, and then based on that, then they design the visuals and um, everything else that goes around with it. It's a very, very fun process and it's an interesting process and it, it definitely helped me formulate and have a more focused answer when people ask me, what does your brand stand for? I yeah. now can say, well, these four things. Mm. Um, yeah. I know Anna, Anna goes through a regular or a similar process uh, pretty regularly with uh, our branding identity systems. It's, it's an incredible thing when, when you, you actually have the opportunity to sit down and read through, well, oh, actually, maybe I'm this rather than that. And they're mm -hmm. always, you know, they try to be opposite words, right? And it really makes yeah. you think um, it's quite a, yeah, super interesting one. Yeah, yeah. It, it really, really helps with understanding your customer even more because you really have to try to, to sort of get into their mind and their perceptions, mm -hmm. which naturally mm -hmm. leads to the marketing conversations and, you know, how, how and where is it that you're speaking to your, your customers? You know, how do you communicate with them? Um, mm -hmm. And I guess that sort of leads us very nicely onto the next question, which is so marketing wise, then you guys um, did the rebrand, which gave you a really good sort of system to use in the digital space. Um, so at the moment, um, what channels are you guys using for marketing? So at the moment, um, we are mostly using digital. So Google, pay-per-click, Facebook, Instagram, um, those are our main acquisition channels, as well as friend referrals directly from the app or the website. Um, and here's something that I want to share, big lesson number three from what I learned. Um, when we first launched the app, and it, it was sort of launched on the website, uh, not on the website, on the app store, I literally sat there thinking super naively and stupidly that once it's on the app store, millions of people are going to come <laughs> and find us and download it. And it's going to be amazing. And I literally sat there for days clicking the refresh button on how many people <laughs> have downloaded the app. And it was like five, 15, yeah. 20. Like it wasn't the millions and millions that I expected. And I quickly, very quickly found out that I should have spent so much more on marketing to begin mm -hmm. with rather than on the tech. That was one of the biggest mistakes that I made is that I spent, say, 80% of my budget on the tech and 20% on the marketing when I should have done exactly the opposite. 
because there's nothing more valuable to an early startup than your traction, mm-hmm. um, being able to get to your customers faster, get the feedback, even if it's not the perfect product. You want them to start using it as quickly as possible. You want the traction. You want to be able to show that to potential investors. You want to be able to learn from the findings of your early users. Um, what are they asking for? What features they want to they want to build? And the only way to get users is to advertise. Nobody's going to find you automatically. Mm-hmm. You have to advertise, um, whether it's on digital or print or outdoor, whatever your service or, or, or business is, you want to be present there. And unfortunately, paid advertising is the most efficient and, and, and best way to gain new customers. Um, and that's a lesson, again, that I learned the hard way that um, we didn't have enough customers to begin with, um, which perhaps hindered us in getting early VC investment. What we should have done is spend more on the marketing and less on the um, on the tech so that we can get that early traction faster. Yeah, incredible. I wish I had uh, one of those sound boards with the, the siren. I just hit it after that point, you know, repetitively <laughs> kicking off on Radio 1. We get um, one. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I will. I, I can edit it in, in post. <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree um, fully. And I mean, of course, us being a digital marketing agency, that's something we firmly believe in, um, especially for that initial period, you know, being able to understand and reiterate, take feedback and change and be very rapid um, and agile in terms of how you develop your product. Um, mm-hmm. Driving customers is, is super, super important. So you mentioned a lot of a lot of your acquisition comes from digital. Mm-hmm. Um, customer acquisition so how does that uh, how do you guys approach um you know the management of all of your digital acquisition activities is that an internal team you've built out over over the years or is this something where you 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 know you pull in an external agency how does that relationship work with you Spa? yes so that is an external agency that i've been working with for years um again I am a firm believer of not adding people on the payroll just so that I don't want to burden the company with unnecessary fixed costs Mm -hmm. uh, until we absolutely need to. Um, For a startup of our size, it is not necessary to have a full-time digital marketing person. You can easily hire an agency, pay them a fee, um, and they manage all of that for you. There's, yeah. you know, we're not a multi-billion dollar company. We're not a multi-million dollar company either. Um, so it's not feasible for us, nor is it necessary for, for a digital marketing person to be in-house. There are plenty of expert agencies out there that can do a very good job. Um, and also digital marketing is, it's not easy. It's, <laughs> it's a science in itself. Yeah. Every single platform has its own specifications what works best on Google PPC is completely different from what works best on Facebook and is different to what works best on, on Instagram. So there's no, there's very few unicorn people that know it all and understand it all and are really good at all of it. Um, You, you kind of, um, you know, you have to work with, I work with consultants a lot on, on that, on, on design, on, you know, on other things, again, because there's no point for me to have an in-house designer or an in-house uh, PR person. It's it's one of those things where you hire them when you need them. You don't you know pay them when you don't need to, um, and you keep your fixed costs down. 
Yeah. Um, one thing I'll say in terms of advertising is if you if your product or service is digital, i.e. on a website or, or, or app, avoid any kind of, of print advertising. <laughs> People will harass you and all kinds of magazine publishers will come to you and offer you the most amazing deals. And I fell for them early on and I spend stupid money on them and none of them worked the way that they should have. Yeah. You want to have the closest path from consumer to your app or website. And if your app or website is digital, then the closest path would be for your consumer to see it on his phone and to click on it. Yeah. If you're waiting for someone to see your ad in a magazine, then maybe they'll remember your name. Then maybe they'll have to go on the website and Google for you. Um, it, it's, it's just a way too long of a path from seeing the ad to conversion. Um, you want the shortest possible path. And for any digital business, it is digital advertising. Really? Furthermore, um, <laughs> just to also give a, an insight here, which um, I, I learned is that if, is that Google PPC is again, the best way to capture a client at the intent of purchase, because they're already searching for something like you. Mm -hmm. If you show someone an ad for, massage or whatever on Instagram, they might say, mm, nice, maybe I'll get one, maybe I won't, I don't know, and they'll flick through it. But if somebody's already searching for, I need a massage right now on Google, and your ad shows, they're already 80% of the way to purchasing. So um, again, going forward, the majority of my digital ad money are, is going to Google, because that is the best conversion channel. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's refreshing to, to hear a, a CEO speak, you know, such truths within the <laughs> digital marketing world. Um, it's, it's, yeah, myself and I'm sure many other digital marketers listening in will, uh, will be very happy with that. But mm. absolutely, 100%, you know, um, you're totally right. And I think, you know, digital acquisition or digital marketing for customer acquisition is just so incredibly crucial uh, if you are starting a tech um, brand or a tech startup um, and, and you want to get that rapid growth at the beginning. It's, uh, it's just a crucial part. Um, brilliant. So what's on the roadmap in the future for, um, for you, Spa? What do you guys have planned moving forward? World domination. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, we like I said, we've literally just launched USPA 3.0. Mm -hmm. We're super excited to come back after the lockdown mm -hmm. um, with a new app, with a, an enhanced menu of services, um, with the last round of funding, um, a large uh, acquirer bought 10% of us. So we have mm -hmm. a brand new partner. Um, it's a company called Fantastic Services. Okay. Uh, they're the UK's largest domestic service provider and they operate in many different countries and we're really excited for them to be behind wow. us and yeah. helping us grow in different markets and different um, cities, uh, both in Europe and beyond. Um, I think that's definitely on the roadmap for us. We will, of course do our best to increase our, our market share in London. We have huge marketing campaigns planned for the next 12 months. We expect to double, if not triple, our annual revenues in the next um, sort of 12 to 18 months. And beyond that, we definitely want to expand to other cities in Europe. Yeah, incredible. And just, just touching on that quickly then, um, did they 
did fantastic services did they approach you or did you approach them so we so i've known the ceo uh for many years we we've sort of been in touch back and forth for for many years and and last year when um he heard that we're fundraising um he decided that that would be a good time to sort of invest in us um we have um uh utilized their technology which they built um over the years to into our new app and and it was really sort of a match made in heaven because we wanted to get features and and build things which they already had and mm. they wanted to expand their service offering to um our world so really it was um a, a really really fantastic match um and and a mutual mutually beneficial deal wicked wicked that's yeah that's incredible that must be such a a, a nice feeling to have you know finally actually a big partner. The, yes. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> reach the goal and it's been in discussions and oh that's mm. that's really cool that's really really cool um all right then so usually at this part of the show um we will ask you so if you could look back over the past few years you're incredibly fun journey roller coaster like as it sounds um you know what are and i know you've dropped like a few massive bombs there's been three amazing big points that you've made within the podcast but you know are there any more nuggets of information that you could give the listeners that if they are thinking about starting their own tech startup or already down that journey you know what what would you drop um, well, I think practically, yes, those are the three different, uh, the three biggest um, things that I already mentioned. So don't start it alone. Mm -hmm. um, definitely spend more on on marketing rather than than the tech, um, and get as much traction and, and user feedback as possible before you build something that you might regret or realize that you don't need. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm sure there, there's other things that I can't think of right now in terms of fundraising and, you know, approaching your network when, when it's time to, to do that and utilizing everyone and anyone you might know. But I think one thing that I definitely want to stress upon people is the emotional part of being a founder, because a lot of entrepreneurs are being glamorized in the media and I, every day you read well this person raised so much money and that person raised so much money and went from zero to hero and mm -hmm. you know this massive success story that's extremely rare yeah. and there's a reason why 90 percent of startups fail it's not because the idea was bad it's because people can't handle the pressure mm. i'm telling you if i knew how hard this whole journey would be on, on me emotionally um, and physically, I may not have started it. I probably wouldn't have started it. Um, we're obviously where we are now. So there's no way that I'm quitting at, at this point. You know, I, I have, you know, huge visions for the company, but I significantly underestimated the emotional <laughs> toll that this would take on me. And, and I've had moments of burnout. I faced, you know, um, discrimination in terms of, uh, you know, VCs and, and sort of um, various things that really can, can hit you emotionally and can really bring you down. And that's really the reason why most people fail and, and don't continue is because it's, it's really hard on you and you feel so lonely and, and you feel so isolated um, because you're in, in your head, you're, you're doing this alone um, and you're, it's you against the world and you have so much to prove 
it's it's not even it, it's it's not the pressure that that even the world is putting on you it's, it's the pressure that you put on yourself because you've said to your friends and family i'm going to do this and i'm going to succeed and anything less than that feels like a massive failure um in reality everyone will understand if you don't make it you know i have friends that that started startups and then decided to do something else i don't think anything less of them it, well, it didn't work out a big deal, you know, move on and they have amazing jobs now. And that's not absolutely, I don't think anything less of them, but when you're in it, it, there's just so much pressure and so much guilt and so much shame, of uh, failure that it's, it really can put you in a very dangerous downward spiral, um, which may not end up very well for, for a lot of people. So be prepared again, this is where having a co-founder or two really helps because you don't feel so alone. Um, I have a few friends of mine that, that, you know, they all have startups and we have these founders therapy sessions <laughs> where basically we, we, you know, gather up and we talk about all the problems that are happening and you realize, oh, it's not just me. He's also going through the same yeah. things as well with management <laughs> and people and logistics Absolutely. and this and that. And it really helps to have someone that is going through the same thing as you and understands all the problems so definitely be very very wary of the emotional and and mental toll that it can take um and be sure that you can that you can manage that before you quit your nice cushiony day job so a massive thank you to Uspa for speaking to us you can find them online at uspa.com to download the app from the app store and google play store search Uspa. that's U-S-P-A-A-H. You're listening to the Digital Spaceship Podcast, a marketing journal by Blue Drop Studio, a digital marketing and creative content agency based in London, UK. We're on a mission to grow the tech brands of tomorrow with creative content and social media advertising. Check us out on LinkedIn and bluedropstudio.com or hit us up on social at HeyBlueDrop on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Your hosts are at Anna Rowinska and at Omar K. Juman. If you want to talk about digital marketing for your brand, drop us a line at hello at bluedropstudio.com. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.